be a good salesperson, you have to you have to learn the product. You have to learn about your account base. You have to learn about the competition, and you have to learn about your your customers' competition. Welcome to CareerPod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. This CareerPod episode is with Terry Tracy, an experienced marketing and sales executive. It focuses on key criteria for success in sales, personal qualities for managing sales rejection, and core responsibilities in sales positions. Terry also talks about the differences in large companies and medium to small environments. Lastly, he talks about his transition from large corporations to part owner of his family business. Well, Terry Tracy, welcome to CareerPod. Fred, thanks for inviting me. All right. Well, Terry, let's start in the beginning. Uh, how about your early life in education and if, in fact, uh, that had any influences on your career choice? Fred, it, it really did. I, I was raised uh, by... Uh, my parents in Seekonk, Mass, and we had an unusual family in that we, uh, we had 12 kids. I was the 10th of 12 kids. So in terms of influences on my life, my parents and my older siblings were like having an additional four or five parents. Um, so uh, they, they were a powerful influence, and, uh, and my schooling uh, influenced me. My high school, St. Rayfield Academy, my coaches, my teachers. Um, from there, I went to Brown University where I majored in economics. And then after four years of uh, my initial work experience at Converse, I uh, uh, entered uh, Boston University for my MBA program. Was that full-time, Terry, or did you go part-time? I did not do it full-time because uh, I had uh, uh, one and a half children at that point in time, and uh, it was not a great time to to quit my job. Right, good move. All right. And then... Uh, so that was pretty impactful, uh, having that uh, amount of advice givers, uh, you know, for good or bad. And uh, you went in to work in, in footwear. Uh, how about just looking back in those early days uh, uh, and also borrowed from your current experience, uh, when you look for people into those entry-level positions, and be it marketing or sales, let's say it's sales, what kind of uh, experience, credentials, or just kind of personality do you tend to look for? Well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk about career paths and sales in the beginning because, in fact, um, I never thought of myself as a natural salesperson. I had two job offers, uh, one at uh, Manufacturers Hanover Trust uh, and the second Abraham and Strauss coming out of college, so banking and retail but they weren't lighting my fire. So uh, one of my older brothers um, had asked me, why don't you try interviewing for sales? And, uh, and I, didn't, I, you know, I thought that might involve a certain type of personality, and, and I found out that I was wrong. What it, what it did involve is having um, passion, a competitive spirit, and, and the ability to com- communicate a message uh, in a way um, that the, the the buyer or your account could understand, you had to paint a, um, a picture for the buyer and integrate your passion within it. Now, what do I mean by that? When you're presenting shoes as an example, you don't just put the shoes down 
you treat the shoe sample like it's, you know, one of the crown jewels. And if you do that, you, 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 you converse about the features and benefits of the product, the buyer is going to buy into your presentation and into what you're selling. Uh, the old adage is uh, they're, in essence, buying you and your passion. A absolutely. If you, uh, if you go into uh, a sales presentation and, and not, are not excited about your brand or your product, it's going to be easily uh, picked up by the buyer. So I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the, uh, the first things you have to realize when you're interviewing for a sales, sales position. You, you have to first sell yourself. Okay. And, and, and the, the thought process of many people like myself coming out of college um, or, or people that are changing um, their, their uh, career path from something to sales, there's always a reluctance to think that you can do it. But in fact, Fred, everybody sells. Um, you sell your, your parents, your children, your spouses, your friends every day on what to do and why to do it. When you think about it, architects, engineers, teachers, doctors, uh, rabbis, priests, and ministers all sell. Uh, everything that we, we need for our material, physical, or spiritual needs uh, are sold to us on a daily basis. You know, it's interesting, Terry. Uh, selling has, over the, the decades, got such a horrible reputation. Even the word selling. Now, uh, in my lifetime, we've seen it, you know, obviously persuasion is much more preferable to selling, but even more, uh, being a solutions provider uh, is much more uh, preferred than being a salesperson. And, and in fact, as we know, uh, solution providers are selling. And uh, so I just make that kind of editorial comment. Uh, and I cut you off. I, why don't you finish your thought there? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, the stereotype of a, a salesperson uh, uh, has always been that used car salesman. Right. And uh, that, that really is the furthest from the truth. Yeah. To be a good salesperson, you have, to, you have to learn the product. You have to learn about your account base. You have to learn about the competition. And you have to learn about your, your customer's competition. Ultimately, uh, not necessarily in your first year, but ultimately your success success is going to depend upon you becoming a partner and a consultant to the, uh, the buyers. Uh, in, in shoes or apparel, as an example, um, you end up becoming the buyer's merchandiser, not, not just their salesperson. They depend upon you not only to present the features and benefits, but also to merchandise with realism what, what it is that you want them to buy and uh, and present uh, present them with a, a package that will work. The problem is, and, and I'm, I might be jumping the gun here, Fred. One of the problems, with, particularly with bigger companies, is they don't want a merchandiser. They want you to sell everything you possibly can to, into that storefront. And the problem with that, and and uh, which really proves that it's a short-term. Um, strategy, not a long-term strategy, is the name of the game in retail is sell-through. And using the shoe and apparel business as an example again, retailers typically want between 6 to 12% sell-through. 
So if you if you win the day and win the award for the greatest month of sales, but your retailers, whether it be Sears in one uh, segment of the market or Foot Locker at the uh, the furthest end uh, of, of in the other direction, and they don't reach their sell-through uh, numbers, your next couple of quarters are going to be horrible. And what's sell-through? Could you define what that is? If you if you sell if you sell 100 pair of shoes to uh, Foot Locker, they want typically to sell between 10 and 12 pairs per week. Okay. All right? All right that's helpful. So it's all about inventory churn because they've invested money uh, and they want a, a great you know, rate of return. Yeah, one, so, of our, one of our other salespeople we interviewed in a whole, wholly different environment, uh, he grew up uh, in an environment where it was all about moving inventory. And when it, this happened to be in precious stones, and I naively talked about, well, you've got a customer that's specifying what they want. Don't you work around those needs? And he quite aptly, given the, the years of experience he had in his environment, it was all about moving inventory. And uh, that's an edge of this that you're talking about, a, a challenge to accommodate both a solution uh, as well as move inventory. Uh, yeah, you'll you'll if you if you deal with your your customers fairly uh, and with integrity, they're gonna you're gonna win them over. They're gonna become friends uh, to you. Uh, they're gonna depend upon you. They're gonna call you for advice. It doesn't just apply to retail. When I first moved from Converse to Reebok. When I was 30 years old, I, I went from Salem, New Hampshire to uh, Cumberland, Rhode Island, and I, I needed a new dentist. Very quickly, I go to this dentist that was recommended, and he noticed that I had a click on each side of my jaw, and he had a long, long uh, terminology for my malady, and uh, I just went for a cleaning, but he was trying to convince me to have surgery to correct that uh, that issue, and I asked the dentist. I said, "Well, wh what does that entail?" He said, "Well, we put you under. We break, uh, you know, um, your jaw, <laughs> and it's a three or four month uh, recovery." So that's typical of uh, well, that's that's very very dramatic uh, example of overselling. Right. So I I finished the conversation, finished the cleaning, and never went back. Right. Right. So, I mean, it, everything in life, as I said, uh, is sold. And uh, it seems like every profession has the ability to oversell. Right. If, if I could answer so, a question, uh, you had uh, products and, to some extent, services that were uh, attempting to be differentiated. I guess the exception might be if a salesperson selling a, a, a true commodity where maybe price, quality, and, and delivery uh, terms are really the only differentiation. Uh, the the screw, the bolt, the widget—they're all the same, and uh, it really comes down to price and, and let's say service. Is that that would modify this? I suspect, uh, but even there, I guess relationships are important. Well, we'll talk later about uh, big and small companies, yeah. uh, perhaps. Right now, um, I can tell you that when I when I left. Reebok, I had a, a cup of tea at Stride, right, and then came to the family business. 
Yeah. And this is Tracy Gear and Precision Shaft. We're a, a commercial uh, gear shaft and, and uh, machine parts uh, manufacturer. So how do I differentiate Tracy Gear from the competition? And right from the, you know, the outset, um, that was one of the, the big issues. It turns out the guy that was doing the quoting here uh, would, would enter orders one week. He would do the routers or job cards to send to the floor to tell the uh, employees you know, what to do first, second, third, fourth. And then in the third week, he would quote. And it boggled my mind. So I had to convince my, uh, my then boss, my, my brother, um, that this was killing us because I knew that all buyers sit at their desks and just want to get paper off their desks. Right. So if we're taking three weeks, uh, we're losing a lot of business. Yep. And in fact, I, over the next six months, nine months, I learned how to read uh, blueprints and I became the quota. Okay. And to this day, part of my sales pitch to anybody new that I'm speaking with is that I'm the fastest quoter in the country. All right. If they give me a quote, I will turn it around in one day. And, and our quote success went from around 22% to around 40% wins well, based upon that. That's spectacular. And it all goes down to looking at process and uh, from the customer's standpoint or the buyer's standpoint, what, what's important to them and uh, kind of outside in view as opposed to inside out. So that's, that's a good Absolutely. Approach. You have to think of yourself as the customer. Well, let's just take a step away from sales. Uh, I know you had significant time in the marketing function. And for most of us, uh, and many of the listeners, marketing and sales are kind of synonymous. It's one big bag. And, and depending on the size and the specialization of organization, they may not have a marketing department. They uh, may just have a sales department. But based on your experience, could you kind of describe what the differences are, in your view, between marketing and sales? Well, I think it's sales, sales is probably the best place to start, in my opinion, because you learn about the, uh, the epicenter of the, uh, the, the market. As an example, in athletic shoes for basketball, the basketball uh, product line uh, was most desired by the African-American teenage male. And if you could sell them, they were the athletic leaders, they were the fashion leaders, that, that, that children from 10 years old to young adults to 28 years old wanted to uh, uh, copy. So if you, don't, if you don't know that, you tend to learn that more from the sales end, in my opinion, than, than marketing. And in, in marketing produces uh, or develops concepts that create points of differences from the competition. They get involved with designers and product managers, the factories, and come up with a, a line of shoes that address, hopefully, that, that market. After they do their work, Plus, they, they, they have the advertising, the promotions, and what have you, the pricing scheme. They hand off the baton to sales. We learn all of the features and benefits that they put into the product. 
And then we go and sell those features and benefits in our sales presentations, typically in, sh in the shoe world, it was the spring and the fall uh, presentations. And to uh, sweeten the pot, we talked about the national advertising, the co-op advertising, the point of purchase materials we would uh, offer them, and volume discounts. So uh, it really was a handoff, um, but many, many, uh, for many of our uh, larger accounts, the marketing uh, directors would come in and give the presentation. So if they didn't know the, the accounts or didn't know the, uh, the target consumers, it just didn't look good. Okay. Well, thanks. That, that helps. Uh, how about focusing on sales again? Uh, where's the satisfaction of sales in general? And where's the, the frustration in, in that kind of role? Well, I think the satisfaction uh, comes from, uh, really, it, it sounds uh, trite, but you, you develop a lot of great friendships. You, you are given responsibility as you uh, improve and, uh, and are promoted. You're, you're given the toughest accounts in some cases. In my case, that happened to me at 25 years old where management uh, thought enough of me to give me uh, Sears Roebuck. Uh, back in the day, for Converse, they were by far the biggest customer. The problem was um, the, the buyer there, name uh, I will not mention his name, he was seen as the nastiest, meanest uh, person on earth within the shoe business. Uh, so much so that one day I was uh, across from his desk. I had bought him a cup of coffee and I had a cup of coffee. He threw a shoe at me hit the coffee, and I scalded myself. Uh, that was the, the worst situation I was ever confronted with. And uh, he was, he was uh, it turns out he was uh, penalized by his company, and, uh, and there was apologies back uh, to the home office at Converse, and we ended up becoming good friends. Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. I turned that, that guy around, and uh, I mean, I just... I'm not going to tell you what I told him right. after he did that, but uh, he, he understood my anger. Let's just put it that right. way. Yeah. That's a very unusual situation, but it led to uh, a tremendous relationship in a tremendous business. Yeah, it's no matter what discipline you're in, you will encounter either egotist or highly politically charged people, or in this case, nasty people in... Uh, it's my experience that if you do something really uh, in response over the top, it may feel good, but in the mid to long term, uh, you never get rewarded for that. Well, in, and I guess I was going to ask later on about luck and good luck. So your good luck was you had the opportunity to take on this difficult uh, buyer and the scalding, the, the blisters went away after just a couple months, but it would... It was the beginning of a good relationship, so that's great. I think that the uh, the whole concept of uh, you know turning turning lemon into lemonade is is so important. Um, the The best example in my career that I can give you, I was up for vice president of national accounts, and the guy I was competing with was one of my very best friends. And and I I did not win the contest. Uh, he became VP of uh, national accounts, and, uh, and, that, and in that position, uh, he was responsible for about 
55% of the total company sales. It was determined by the powers to be that it would not be right for him to have to manage such a good friend. So they were going to uh, Jimmy Garoppolo me. They were going to let me go. And then right at the last minute, they said, look, you know, you've been great. Um, you know, would you consider taking a product category as, as a, uh, a marketing uh, director? And they offered me the position of director of marketing um, for the cross-training category. Well, it was all limit at that point in time. We were uh, horrible in cross-training in that, in that time frame with only $40 million in worldwide sales. And Nike was number one, and just uh, you couldn't see them with binoculars. So I, I formed a team of four people. We brainstormed for two or three weeks. And uh, the people that I got um, became great friends of mine and uh, had tremendous success on their own. But at the time, these guys were younger than me, and they were not considered the elite of the company. And they knew it. So we had this, uh, this hod hodgepodge of uh, a group, and uh, nobody was paying any attention to us uh, because uh, the category was insignificant. Well, here's, here's the bottom line. We created two points of difference within two product concepts that revolutionized not only the category, but the athletic footwear market. Pre-season, uh, a slightly studded shoe that could be used for the turf, for the gym, to play basketball, but the shoes were the red badge of courage for football and baseball players, not basketball players, Nike's powerhouse. And secondly, running cross-training. Because every cross, in every cross-training effort, people typically go for a run. So we took the cross-trainer and made it runnable. Two separate concepts. In one year, we went from $40 million to over $300 million. And that lasted for six years, well after the time that I had left the company. Well, that, that indeed is satisfying when you can you know, think creatively and, and as you say, lemon into lemonade. Uh, so that, that's a good example. How about uh, emerging technologies as you do your job now versus how you did it way back when? You, uh, what use of new technologies and sales or sales management do you have? Well, I, I think that's an interesting question, Fred. Um, based upon my age, and the fact that I entered the, the job market in 1976, the first facsimile machine or fax machine I ever saw was in the Sears Tower. There was no uh, internet. There was no email. There was no cell phones. We still had administrative assistants called secretaries. And now um, everything has changed. Uh, the, the, uh, the need to have an administrative assistant really doesn't exist anymore. You can go, uh, one of my last acts, I was uh, VP of sales for a short time at, at uh, Reebok, and I had to sell um, management, uh, finance in particular, on buying each and every salesperson a laptop. 
so that they could present the product line and show the, the advertising, the promotions, and what have you, you know, on their laptop instead of using a flip chart. Today in my, my uh, present company, Tracy Gear, we do email marketing. We can, uh, we can uh, put together uh, prospects, a list of prospects, or buy a list based upon the zip, zip codes. And we can, we can uh, market via email to 1,000 different prospects in, in a second. And, uh, and typically, while we don't get the, three, the, the typical standard 3% return, we do get like 1%. Okay. And it's, uh, it's been a marvelous uh, innovation for us. Uh, Terry, uh, you've gone from a very big company with very broad responsibilities, a lot of resources, to a smaller business. And uh, for some of the people listening, they'll have that choice. If they don't have it currently, sometime in their career, they will. The, the allure of going to a big company or going small, what's kind of decision tree? What are the trade-offs that you've experienced? Let me, let me just go through what I think. Um, are the benefits and the drawbacks of both from my perspective. In a large company, the positives is it's a great environment to learn, particularly for younger people. You're given specific duties. You know exactly what you have to do in a given day. You get that big stage experience, the excitement, the travel, the shows, the sales meeting, meeting the big accounts. You're typically not overworked, from my experience, and you have a tremendous database for analyzing the business. If you're given an assignment, you know, you've got it all in front of you. The negatives, from my perspective, is that there are endless meetings with little accomplished. Now, this is my opinion, but this is what I experience. For me, there's just too much time killed in meetings. It's very similar to the hearings held in the U.S. Congress. Everyone wants to talk, but nobody wants to listen. There's very poor forecasting and very unrealistic expectations. You know, history would show in many of these companies that they'll, you know, that average a 4% increase, 3.5% increase per year in sales. But every year you're faced with a, um, you know, a sales goal of 15% increase. Well, that's silly. I think that things get more political with upper management that, that, is out, that are out of touch uh, with markets and the target consumers, the bigger the company is. And big companies tend not to be nimble or decisive in changing strategy or fixing problems that pop up. Now, small companies, well, the positives for small companies, uh, from my perspective, you're hands-on from the start. This, you're not given any residency, period. Small companies are more flexible. There's a lot more thinking out of the box, out of necessity. There's more trust and there's more loyalty. There has to be. There's realistic forecasting. There's nobody hovering over you that's you know, pounding you for an unrealistic forecast. You learn more different things because of the need to multitask. Your good work is always noticed, not just by your boss, but by everybody in the company, which creates better team spirit. And it's much more difficult for bad management to hide within a, middle, a mid-sized company or a smaller company. 
The negatives, I think, uh, for small companies is uh, you don't necessarily have the best teachers or mentors. You have small budgets to work with. You have to get more creative. Your sales and marketing analysis is wanting versus the big stage. And you have less capital investment uh, to lean on. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all, it all depends on what you like and, and what period of your career you're in. It's my experience that uh, uh, it's nice to have either or, meaning you can, because as life, you know, proceeds, there may be geographic preferences, there may be family reasons, there may be financial objectives that are best served by going large or going small. Uh, I think in general, it's easier to start in a big company where you get exposure to maybe better technology, better systems, maybe some methodologies, uh, and then go small or medium-sized later on in career. I think it is difficult to go small to large. Uh, I agree. They tend to stereotype and they wrongfully assume so much. But I think the way you outlined it is spot on, that uh, there's no place to hide in, in smaller environments, whether you as an individual or uh, a series of bad management decisions. So that, that's very helpful. I think that's very good, spot on. And just lastly, uh, just briefly, because uh, I think we're over here, uh, how do you feel about a family business? Well, I've only had the one experience, um, and I'm not sure that, that, that my family business is uh, typical. Um, and that's, uh, I'm, sh I'm, I'm not sure I can even be uh, objective about it, but uh, we just had an incredible, you know, uh, family experience growing up together, and uh, we had total trust in each other. And, uh, and further, Fred, as trite as this sounds, the people that work for our company, we consider family. Uh, we go out of our way to make them feel as comfortable as possible. During the bank crisis uh, back, uh, was it 10 years ago now or whatever, um, you know, the economy crashed. Our business fell 35, 36%. We had to get rid of one person. We had to let them go, that one person go. But everybody had to take a 10% pay cut. And, and uh, my brothers and I, much more than that. And... Uh, it was sort of devastating for the rank and file. Well, we did something unprecedented. After our, our business started picking up, after about six months, at the end of that year, we made everybody whole. We gave them the 10% back. And it was an expensive proposition because we, we were still struggling at that time. But I, I really believe that they feel and we feel that, that we're more than just an employer and employee. That's, that's spectacular, Terry. I think the takeaway there is whether a person's interviewing in a large company or a small company, it's important to, for them to peel the onion later in the interviewing process where you have the opportunity to ask harder questions. Try to find out how do they differentiate themselves as a culture? What do they do that's different? And in a positive light. Uh, do references on companies before you go to work there. Sometimes you can call 
ex-employees. LinkedIn is a fantastic tool to help people uh, talk to ex-employees and ask for some input in terms of what was it like to work for uh, the company. So, uh, well, this has been a pleasure talking to you, Terry, and your insight in, into selling, the differentiation between marketing and sales, uh, some of your antidotes have been very helpful, and I'm sure people in sales or looking to enter sales uh, will really benefit from listening to this. So I want to thank you very much for the time. No problem, Fred. It was a pleasure.